I'm Paul Levinson, and welcome to Light On, Light Through, episode 105. My reviews of The Man in the High Castle, season two. Well, season two of The Man in the High Castle debuted in its full streaming 10 episodes just this past Friday. And uh, it took me until Saturday night, actually early Sunday morning, to see all 10 episodes. And that's saying a lot about my self-control because the series is so outstanding. There's so much in it that I easily could have watched the whole 10 episodes at one sitting. But I did want to give myself a little more time to savor uh, what was there in that unbelievably powerful story. So, in fact, what I did is I wrote a series of three reviews and posted it on my blog, infiniteregress.tv. I reviewed the first three episodes, then the second three episodes, and then the final four episodes. But there's more that I wanted to say about that series. And so I thought I would do this podcast and do a combination of reading my three reviews to you in case you enjoyed listening more than reading and also add some commentary. So I entitled my first review, again, of episodes 2.1 to 2.3, My Hamisher Town. Now, the word Hamisher uh, will sound familiar to people who understand German and, for that matter, Yiddish. Actually, I'm not 100% sure how it's pronounced in German because I know the word from Yiddish. And it means home or homey. So my Hamisher town is Yiddish slash German for my hometown. By the way, Yiddish is a sort of medieval form of German, and the two languages are very similar, especially in, in speech. So uh, I will get to my Hamisher town in a moment, but let me first say, as I pointed out in my review, that I, I found it harder, but also more important, and on some profound level, also more enjoyable and disconcerting at the same time, if that makes any sense. To review season two, than I did season one of this superb series, The Man in the High Castle, on Amazon. And the reason should be obvious. We're a lot closer to Nazis ruling America in 2016 than we were just a year ago. The bare, ugly facts of the matter are that some of the president-elect's most ardent supporters are American neo-Nazis. But I'll try not to dwell on that, and also not on comparisons between season two of The Man in the High Castle and the novel, The Man in the High Castle, the 1962 novel, also a masterpiece, of course, by Philip K. Dick. As I said in my reviews of the first season, you know, the novel and the television series are two very different kinds of media. And equations between the two comparisons are usually even more difficult than apples and oranges. 
So I'll start with my review of the first three episodes. The first episode starts with an absolutely chilling, brilliant scene of the kind that worked so well in the first season. Obergruppenführer Smith's son is going to high school. It's a perfectly normal high school on Long Island by our American standards. There's a girl in the class that Smith's son Thomas likes. And there's a perfect 1960 Paul Anka song playing in the background. My hometown. And it starts off with a flourish of violins and Paul Anka's great 1960 voice. I took a trip back to my hometown. Oh, I was doing it. Do, 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 do. Anyway, I won't sing the whole song to you, but, you know, Paul Anka is someone who has really made enormous contributions to our music for, you know, better than 50 years. In addition to writing that song, he wrote Diana, a number one hit record in the late 1950s. He wrote the theme song for the Johnny Carson show. And he also wrote My Way, which, of course, was done by Frank Sinatra. So, you know, he has done an enormous amount of work. And his song in that opening scene was just perfect because it's a very vanilla white bread song and it's really perfect for what the scene was trying to convey it has a lot of subtle elements in there for example we'll find out later in the series that rock and roll the kind of rock and roll that came from rhythm and blues is something that obviously the nazi reich the american reich in america didn't like and so that kind of music is underground played on pirate radios but paul anka's song is perfect that kind of Bobby Rydell, early 1960s theme. And so everything about that early scene could have taken place in our early 1960s, not the man in the high castle 1960, except the Pledge of Allegiance the class does is a Nazi Pledge of Allegiance ending in a triple Sig Heil. And if you look around the classroom you'll not only see the girl that Thomas Smith likes smiling at him, but in back of her there's a map on the wall, and it shows the conquest that Germany, the Third Reich, has made uh, as of 1960. They have conquered all of Africa, all of Europe, and the eastern part of the United States and some other places as well. So that combination of comfortingly familiar and jarringly not familiar is what made The Man in the High Castle so effective in its first season. And the second season applies this recipe with the same unnerving skill. I don't think I'll ever hear that Paul Anka song again without some hair standing up somewhere on the back of my neck. Now, there's a significant change for the better in the second season, and it's crucial and it's soon apparent. The man in the high castle is definitely not Hitler, which was strongly implied in the first season, and by the way, at variance with the novel. But it's Abendsen, played by Stephen Root and looking and sounding just as he should, that is, like Philip K. Dick. 
So let's take a little stock of where we are as this second season gets going. At least two people have some real knowledge of our reality. That is the world in which Philip K. Dick lived, not Abinson, and wrote the novel in 1962. The world in which this masterful Amazon series is now streaming in its second season 50-plus years later. And Trump will soon be president. Hey, I know I said I try not to dwell on that or the novel, but I didn't say I never mentioned them at all. But back to the TV series, Abinson knows about our reality. That's what he's making his newsreels about. And so does the Japanese trade minister in San Francisco, Togomi, who is just a fabulous character, by the way. Now, how and why these two know our reality, at least up to the early 1960s, to be clear? Well, there's no clue about that as yet in the series. So that's the backdrop. As to the proximate stories, no need for me to give much of that away or even discuss or accept to say they're pretty good with some fine surprises and also some great tests of love in all kinds of relationships, including father and son, the resolution of which was predictable but still satisfying to see, and some excellent contrary touches like a Nazi plan to irrigate the Sahara for the good of humanity. In other words, here in 1962, in this alternate reality in which the Germans dropped an atom bomb on Washington in 1945, and two years later, the U.S. surrendered to Nazi Germany. And here in that awful alternate reality, there's still some good being done in the world by some Nazis, or at least he says that's what he wants to do. Let's get on to the second set of three episodes, 2.4 to 2.6. I entitled that review, Rails and Realities. And first, let me say again that what I like most in The Man in the High Castle on Amazon television, and there's an enormous amount to like in this extraordinary series, but what I like most is the almost casual way it shows the melding of our American history with the way it might have been had the Germans and the Japanese won the Second World War. Signs like see the American Reich on rail hanging in a New York City train terminal. I couldn't tell whether it was Grand Central or Penn Station. Next to a picture of Hitler with white hair, well, that says everything you want to know about this story. Europeans always put more stock than we did in travel by rails. In the aftermath of World War II, American rail travel was systematically overtaken and dismantled by our love of automobiles in our reality. But the rails also had and have a horrible, horrible role in the Holocaust, being the vehicle of delivery of victims to the death camps. So that sign on screen for just a fast moment conveyed all of that and more. Because if you love rail travel and wish there was more of it today, and I take Amtrak to Washington and Philadelphia and Boston whenever I can, 
and I wish I could take it even further, then that sign also speaks to a kind of progress we missed here in our real history in America. Just as with those super-fast Nazi rocket planes that we saw a lot of in season one. Now, the second group of three episodes of The Man in the High Castle, and that's 2.4 to 2.6, are all about comparison to that alternate reality and ours. So much so that Togomi actually goes into and back to our reality for the better part of two episodes. Indeed, the ending of 2.6 with Togomi watching JFK address the nation about the Cuban Missile Crisis with his voice playing in the alternate reality, with Joe now in Nazi Germany in 1962, and Smith and his family in the American Reich New York in this alternate reality, is a memorable piece of cinema all in itself. We victors of World War II, in our reality, that is, in the reality in which America and England won World War II. Well, you know, we came pretty close to blowing up the world at that point in 1962 during the Cuban Missile Crisis. Lest we comfortably sit back and smugly assume, even for a moment, that our winning World War II led to a world of unbridled peace and security. In all realities... The truth is, we humans are never too far from the precipice. Now, there were lots of outright surprises and surprising interconnections in these middle three episodes, too. Juliana is married to Togomi's son in our reality. That is, in the America that won the Second World War. That closes a loop which opened in the first season when she went to work for Togomi in the Japanese One Reality, which in turn jump-started in some way his entry into our reality. And it turns out Joe is not just an American working for the Nazis. He was born in Germany like a boy from Brazil, part of the Hitler perfection of the race program. How all of these pieces on the alternate reality cross-dimensional board will fall out or fit together is anyone's guess, and we likely won't have final answers at the end of this season either. Which is good, since this story needs all the room it can get. The man in the high castle himself, that is the man, not the series, no doubt knows some of the answers. It occurred to me that he's also a time traveler of sorts, or has access to futures in some way, but he burned most of the films and now has all of that crucial knowledge of all of those crucial realities only in one place, his head. And now my final review of The Man in the High Castle, episodes 2.7 to 2.10, alternate reality to the rescue, literally. And as I said earlier, I had hoped to take a little more time to watch all of these episodes, but I just couldn't resist watching the rest of the series, the final four episodes of The Man in the High Castle, pretty much right after the middle three, and I'm glad I did. Much as I love a good night's sleep, you know, it isn't all it's cracked up to be. 
especially when there's a series like this to be binge-watched. So let me start my review of the final four episodes by saying my favorite scene in these episodes. Well, maybe not my favorite, but the one I enjoyed most in a perverse sort of way was when a Nazi newscaster in New York is shot dead on the air right in the middle of his announcing that Hitler had died. Now, he was actually telling the truth. He didn't want to make that announcement. He was blackmailed into doing it. But boy, there's a satisfying example, in fiction, of course, where it should stay, of a propagandist newscaster getting a just dessert. A less over-the-top way of silencing him, of course, would have just been to cut the power. But hey, this is alternate reality, and a Nazi alternate reality at that. Now, on to the major plot. The use of a tape from our reality showing a hydrogen bomb test conducted by the U.S. in the Pacific Ocean in what would have been Japanese territory had it won the war was a brilliant twist and an ingenious, unpredictable use of alternate reality. I've never seen anything like that before or read anything like that before, so kudos for that twist. And that use of alternate reality didn't even come from the man in the high castle, Abinson. Which gets us to Togomi. As I said earlier, he's a fabulous character, literally, because he can travel back and forth between our reality and the one in which the Axis powers won the Second World War. Now, one slight hole in the plot is why he wasn't missed more, especially in such crucial times when he was away from the Axis victorious reality and at home with his family and ours. But that's a small quibble. On the plus side, we find out that one of his colleagues also made the trip and that possibly the U.S. atom bombing of Japan was the trigger. It certainly motivated the colleague to make the trip, but what I'm thinking is maybe somehow the atom bombs dropping in Japan ripped apart the time-space continuum and caused this alternate reality to take place. There was not even a suggestion of that in the actual series, but somehow it occurred to me. Anyway, I like that a lot better than the I Ching explanation, which we find in the novel and which is sort of implied in the television series. That's because I like hard science fiction better than mystical science fiction. Now, the doings in Nazi Germany were outstanding television, especially the evolution and devolution of Joe's father. One point, though, that I'm not 100% clear about regarding what happened in Berlin. Did Hitler die of A, natural causes, B, Japanese poison, or C, part of a plot pulled off by Joe's father? Smith cleverly uses, quote, evidence, unquote, of C to get Joe's father out of the acting chancellorship, which therein saves the world for the present. That is back in 1962. But I certainly wouldn't put it past Smith to have concocted some or all of this evidence. 
And speaking of Smith, what an Emmy-worthy performance by Rufus Sewell. And also memorable work by Alexa Davalos, too. By the way, in case you didn't know about this, Frank Spotnitz left the show running after episode five. He worked on the show for years and was really the creative force completely behind season one and uh, I assume most of season two. So did I notice a difference before and after Spotnitz's leaving the show? That is, was there a difference between episodes one through five and six through ten? Well, maybe a little. Episodes 6 through 10 were maybe a little less metaphysical, a little more large in terms of big developments and important characters killed. And also the ending with Abinson and Giuliano was a little mawkish. Now, on another matter, I don't know whose fault this is or even if it's a fault. I'm not really sure about this, but we basically learned everything we would about the man in the high castle. That is, again, the physical man. And not very much, actually, in the very first episode, and not much in any later episode at all. We still don't know the all-important source of Abinson's newsreels. You know, they're fake news of sorts. That's what we would call it in today's parlance, with the big twist that the news is real. That is, the fake news in this alternate reality in which the Axis powers won World War II, that fake news is actually real in our reality. But altogether, the ten episodes continue what I thought after the first season, and that's that The Man in the High Castle is the best series on television this year. And in many ways, the best science fiction television series ever made. I would say Star Trek, the original series, and The Next Generation are the only competition in different ways. So if you're a fan of science fiction, if you haven't seen the first series, see it. If you've seen the first series, take my word for it, you'll love the second series, regardless of what alternate reality you may be in. The Light on Light Through podcast. Well, I hope you enjoyed that review of The Man in the High Castle Season 2. And I'll be back here soon with some more television reviews, other kinds of episodes of Light on, Light Through. And I'll end off with a word from our sponsor, in this case, me. Have a great holiday and a happy new year. Athens, 2042 A.D. She ripped the paper in half, then ripped the halves, then ripped what was left again into bits and pieces of history that could have been. Sierra Waters had read once that, years ago, it was thought that men made love for the thrill, while women made love for the sense of connection it gave them. Curled up with a good book says, Sierra Waters is sexy as hell. You can find out more about The Plot to Save Socrates by Paul Levinson at theplottosavesocrates.com.
ancient biotech war raging on in secret for centuries. 